This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hi, and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. This is Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I so appreciate you being here. I've done this podcast for about three years now, trying to reach out to people who may already be in therapy or very interested in psychological issues. Maybe to those of you who are just initially diagnosed with depression or anxiety or you're having relationship issues and you're looking for some answers. Or for those of you who might never darken the door of a therapist but are just curious enough to want to know what someone like me might have to say. This isn't therapy, but at least you can hear more about psychological things and mental health issues. So welcome. You know, there are many ways to feel alone in the relationship, and this podcast happens to be being published on Valentine's Day. So the pain of being alienated from your spouse or lonely in your relationship or not even in love anymore can really be a problem, especially somehow given the context, just like the holidays of this particular holiday. Then we stress going out or letting the people that you love know that you love them. So today we're going to be talking about trying to find your way back to someone that you have loved, but that you wonder now, are you still in love with them? And there are four attitudes and actions that can actually help, and I'll use a couple from my own practice as an example. Our listener email today is a very poignant one from a young man whose relationship with his mom was rocky due to her being abusive. Now she's died of a second bout with cancer, and he finds himself pushing away from others who love him, except for his young child. He wants to understand more, and I'll certainly do my best to answer his question. But today on Self Work, we're going to focus on how to find your way back when perhaps all feels lost, and perhaps you don't even feel in love anymore. There is certainly more than one way of feeling alone. Loneliness is very much a part of some people's existence who aren't in a committed relationship or are isolated because of depression or anxiety. And sometimes that aloneness can be very, very difficult to handle. Other people seem to prefer it. But when you're in a relationship and you have made a commitment or perhaps you're married, you can also feel very alone. Maybe the two of you spend a lot of time apart. Maybe you stop talking about anything but the kids. Maybe you fear they're having an affair. Or maybe the two of you are so worried about money that you never give yourselves time to play together. Maybe you've gotten into a rut of being overly critical of one another. Or maybe you don't even feel seen by your partner. Maybe you're not touching one another. Maybe you don't feel what I term in sync with your partner or spouse. This can happen pretty often, actually, when your own needs and theirs don't match up very well. We all have days when we hear our partner say something like, I really can't believe it's been so long since I've had a break. And you look at them and say, hey, you went hunting last weekend or you traveled for work two weeks in a row and I was here with the kids. So often we can be out of sync. And then, of course, maybe the worst thing to hear, I love you but I don't feel in love with you anymore. 
What is someone actually supposed to do if they hear this? The very helplessness this statement engenders is quite paralyzing, sort of like a deer in the headlights kind of reaction. Do I move toward my partner? Do I move away? Do I get defensive? Do I tell them that makes me afraid? Do I get angry? You're dealing with shock and all kinds of emotions. Maybe you sort of sensed that they had moved away, but when you actually hear the words, it can be quite devastating. And how did you get there in the first place? Now, today, we're not necessarily talking about when you're in a relationship with someone who's manipulative or doesn't take responsibility for the impact of their behavior on the ones they love. For example, I've done several episodes on trying to love someone who has a personality disorder, either borderline personality disorder or narcissistic personality disorder. And if you're interested, I'll have those episode links in the show notes. No, today we're talking about people who are trying to understand and deal with what have become unhealthy partners in the relationship. What's going on that one or both feel detached, disappointed, or lonely, or not even in love? Frankly, I've had lots of couples come in. I do a fair amount of marital therapy, probably about a third to a fourth of my practice. And I can tell one of them already has a foot out the door. It's just a sense you get. It's sort of the way they hold their body. They don't make a lot of gestures toward their partners. They look at me mostly. And if that's the case, there are usually secrets being kept. And the prognosis for that relationship is pretty grim. I'll usually say something. I'll say, you know, I don't get a real sense that you're sure you're still committed and see what they have to say. But I want to share the story of one couple that I saw years ago. Because they're a great example of no problem being too much of a problem if both people take responsibility for their part and begin addressing it. Just so we're clear, let's call them Anthony and Bree. When Anthony and Bree walked in and told me their story, I frankly wondered if they had a chance in hell of staying married. Now, this may sound stereotypic, and actually I had a comment, oh, I'm not sure, three or four months ago that the listener wished I would be more gender neutral, so I've actually been trying to do that, but I'm going to risk sounding a little gender stereotypical. But anyway, so I'd never seen a man as distraught as Anthony, nor a woman quite as shut off as Brie. It's more common frequently for a female to show more emotional expression. That's not always the case. But men as a gender, again, are less comfortable with the therapy environment and just talking in general and thus less open, but the opposite was the case here, as it had been other times. Anthony sobbed in my office. I mean, remember, his shoulders were shaking, as he related that he was more than close to divorce. He'd had it with Bree's anger and the overly forceful, not abusive, but forceful way she had of disciplining the kids. He'd brought divorce up the month before and felt tremendous shame that he was giving up. He readily admitted that he'd been extremely passive in the marriage and often let Bree handle things, and that he rarely, if ever, spoke up. Instead, he'd act in passive-aggressive ways with her. He'd pout and sulk. But then the air would clear just enough, and the marriage would rock on, until she had one more anger outburst. By this time, they'd been married many years. They had two almost teenage children. He'd had it and was going to file for primary custody. They'd stopped having sex years before and never touched one another. So what did I see from Bree? Instead of defensiveness, what I heard and saw from her was quiet affirmation. She said, he's right. 
She told me that since he told her he wanted a divorce, she'd been reading books on anger management, trying to figure out where her rage was coming from. She was angry that Anthony had left her with so much responsibility, but she recognized that that anger was way over the top. She'd gotten into individual therapy and was beginning to understand herself. However, she also sadly looked at me and said, maybe I've waited too late. Actually, there was a part of me that agreed with her. In the room that day, it indeed felt like it was too late. However, I gave them two things to think about and agree on that day. One, that the goal of therapy wasn't to save their marriage. This may seem a little contradictory, but if that was the goal, Anthony wouldn't feel as if his voice was being heard, especially not by me. So I looked at them and said, the goal of your therapy in here will be to try to understand how both of your vulnerabilities led to this impasse. And the focus needs to be not on whether you see the other person changing, but are you changing? I want you to do this work purely for you. We'll see what happens in the marriage as we go along. Basically, what I said to them is, even if this marriage ends in divorce, I want y'all to feel as if you have the capability of being the best husband or wife you can be. So you don't leave the relationship in shame. And even if it leads to the two of you being better co-parents when you're divorced, then that work will be worth it. So they both agreed to that. It's a little hard to do it because it's mostly hypothetical or it has to do with your attitude, but I really wanted to get their focus away from the urgency of saving their marriage. Two, they agreed that they'd stay married for another three months and no one would threaten divorce or use language insinuating such. Let's say it was January the 3rd, and on that date, three months later, they would have a conversation about where they both were commitment-wise. The focus needed to stay on the present, not on the future. Now, this is not a technique I've necessarily only used with people who I thought were literally about to fall off the edge of their marriage. I've used it in other cases as well, when the emotional dynamics were very, very intense between the couple. You have to cut things down so they're manageable, especially the emotions involved. So we were off. And, frankly, I was amazed at the end of two months the progress that they had made. Anthony was smiling and risking, stating his opinion and his ideas. She talked to the kids about her anger and taken responsibility and asked for forgiveness for the way she'd been treating them. And the four of them sat down and talked about their family expectations, that they needed to play more as a family, get off their devices, and have certain expectations about how anger and disappointment were going to be handled. Both Anthony and Bree took responsibility for their part in the problem, and they both miraculously began to rediscover about the other what they loved in each other. It was interesting what they told me also the first session that almost all their friend group had divorced, and both of them said to me, we don't want to be like them. If there's any way we can save this, even Anthony said, I I'm so ready to do this, but there's a part of me that doesn't want to be part of that statistic. So when they got there and I could see them getting there, it made tears come to my eyes for them and for their children. 
They were finding their way back to each other physically and sexually. Again, it took very hard work on both their parts and an amazing amount of humility and acknowledgement of their part. But if you recognize yourself in this couple, what can you do? What did they do that was essential to get back what they lost? And for today, we're going to be talking about four things. First, realize what about the problem is yours. It's possible that this feeling could be more about you than the other person, your unhappiness, your loneliness. Maybe everything has lost its vibrancy. You could be getting more negative. It's possible you've become depressed. There could be hormonal changes that are getting in the way. There could be situational changes. There's a symptom of depression called anhedonia, and all that means is that you just don't take pleasure in what you used to take pleasure in. And guess what? Your partner could be one of those things. Bree definitely recognized that the abuse she'd experienced as a child was coloring the way she looked at her own children and leading to overly high expectations of their behavior. She needed her children to be perfect to show her she was a good parent. When she began realizing that and how helpless she felt, she could see that she was depressed and that she was expressing that depression through anger. When she went back and started healing some of the things about her own family, she also began feeling more free and less sad, which she was very uncomfortable feeling. She was much more comfortable with anger, as many of us are. So what's the second thing? You have to become aware of how others are affecting you. A male patient told me one time, I can't find one trustworthy woman who doesn't want me for what I can do for her. It was kind of interesting that he chose a female therapist. Now, it was true he had been hurt, and badly, by a first wife who seemed particularly manipulative. But when I asked more questions, it seemed he mostly hung out with men who talked about women very critically. And guess what? He tended to date women who were needy, setting up the very scenario he didn't want to. That proved him right. When you're attracted to someone who's needy, they are interested in what you can do for them. So you have to be careful that you're not hanging out with people who bash the other gender. Whether you're a woman or a man, no matter what your orientation, if you're around people who categorize groups of people, no matter who they are, their gender, their sexual orientation, their religion, whatever, you're going to be impacted by that. I've already mentioned that Anthony and Bree had a lot of divorced couples who were friends, and many of those friends were touting the benefits of being single again. And there was a part of Anthony especially, but also Bree, that didn't want to be swayed by what these people had to say. And especially Anthony realized that perhaps they had been influential in causing him to only look at the negative, which was real, but it was not everything. Here's the third attitude that can lead to you being able to turn around a troubled commitment. Instead of blaming and being stuck in disappointment, ask yourself what you're trying to learn. You know, I partly fell in love with my husband because his life was stable. He seemed to make good, solid decisions, and I knew I could count on him. Now, six years later, I was screaming on the inside, do you ever do anything without going over it a hundred times? <laughs> But actually, the opposite was also true. I think he fell in love with me for my spontaneity and a more intense emotional life. But when we got married, 
After a few years, he feared that I was going to tell somebody off or be impulsive or spend too much money. Neither of us were right. It's just that you don't get one of those traits without its ensuing opposite. And one is a lot more difficult than the other. I wasn't going to get stable without someone who took time to make decisions. He wasn't going to get someone with a rich emotional life without hearing those very emotions vehemently expressed from time to time. Back to Anthony and Bree, they were stuck in their disappointment. The, I didn't know it would be like this. You chose the person you chose for a reason. Instead of staying stuck, you can ask yourself, so what am I trying to learn by choosing the partner I did? Anthony realized that he loved that Bree's voice was strong, and he actually had chosen her because he wanted to learn how to be more like her. Bree realized that Anthony's tenderness had been an emotional salve for her, but that she'd not learned to approach life with more vulnerability like he did, and that's what she needed to learn. We're often attracted to our partners because of what they can teach us, but sometimes that learning can be difficult. And here's the fourth. Don't overreact to being out of sync. It's normal. Nurturing a relationship takes effort and time. Everybody's marriage gets out of sync sometimes. Your needs just don't match up very well. Maybe one of your parents has died, but at the same time, the other got a huge job promotion with increased responsibilities. Or maybe one of your children is struggling with homework and failing grades, and at the same time, more money is needed for the roof that's leaking. So one of you focuses on the child and the other focuses on finances. And sometimes, you know, what if your child needs a mentor or a tutor? That takes money. So often we can get out of sync because we're focusing on different areas of the relationship, different needs, different expectations. Who's going to give what and when? We need something from our partner that it's tough for them to give. Now, obviously, if this is a chronic problem, we're talking about more than being out of sync. Anthony and Bree weren't in sync at all. They actually hadn't had a true, intimate conversation in about two years. They were intensely focused on the kids and had left their own relationship dangling, assuming it would survive on its own. And that's simply not true, ever. At least, that survival won't look very healthy. Therapy may have been the first thing in years that both of them took time for. At the end of our work, they were planning a trip away, just the two of them. No friends, no kids. That hadn't happened in forever. So let's summarize once again the four things to help you get back on your feet in a relationship. First, realize what about the problem is yours. Second, be aware of how others around you may be affecting you. That could be your mother, your father, your friends, your work colleagues, whoever. Third is instead of blaming and being stuck in disappointment, ask yourself, in your choice of your partner, what were you trying to learn? And the fourth is don't overreact to being out of sync. It's normal. But remember, you have to nurture a relationship. And that takes time together alone. Our listener email is from Nathan. It's a very poignant SpeakPipe message and one that probably a lot of you can relate to. Hey, Dr. Rutherford. 
my name's Nathan. So my mom died a year ago from her second bout of cancer. She was mostly unpleasant to me in my childhood. Not mostly, but a good portion of the time. It was pretty rough stuff like you're a pussy, you're an idiot, and this or that. And I don't like you, but I love you. But uh, she's died, like I said, and, and I miss her a lot, even though we know we had the kind of relationship we did. But I find myself pushing basically everyone else away in my life, even my wife to an extent. The only person I'm not is my almost two-year-old daughter. I'm not really pushing her away. She's like the joy of my life. But, uh, yeah, that'd be great if you could maybe shed some light on that. All right. Have a good one. Bye-bye. So what could be happening with Nathan? There could actually be several things, but I want first to say how sorry, Nathan, I am that your mother died without ever apologizing to you or trying to acknowledge the damage her own problems had caused. Often an ending or death like this can create its own set of reactions, as on some level you recognize that with her death, any chance or opportunity for that emotional closure to happen is gone. It died along with her. She never made herself available to hear from you, and that can make you feel very angry, like you've been robbed again. Now, perhaps you're not comfortable with that anger after all. She died battling cancer for the second time. Maybe she even showed courage in that fight, and you want to hang on to that. Anyway, cancer's a hell of a battle to fight, so it can feel very complicated. And actually, pushing others away can keep it more simple. It may be that you're isolating yourself from others because you don't want what you're perceiving as their pity or empathy. You want to stay in control of your emotions. People sometimes don't understand that even if your parent was harsh or unloving, they were still all you had. And you missing her might sound contradictory, but really it is not. You learned how to cope with her unavailability and even the insults she passed out. And that doesn't mean that there weren't some good times. And again, she was your mother. It's interesting that you don't push away your two-year-old. She needs you and asks no questions, and you can stay much more in control. It was interesting to me that even your voice and your message sounds very even, like you're staying in your head rather than connecting with your emotions. That may be where you feel safe and that's okay, but it's not going to be the answer long term. I'd encourage you to write in a journal. And let your wife and others know that you see their efforts to reach out to you. You're just not in a place right now where you can reach back. But that's where you want to end, being able to reach back. You can acknowledge that you're backing off for self-protection. And that's far different than backing off because you don't appreciate their efforts. Grief is unique to everyone. It also might be helpful for you to write a letter to your mom. Obviously, she'll never read it. But you can tell her what you might have wanted to say to her. You could even write her answer, and maybe that answer would talk about the mother she wished she was. Or maybe she'd continue to blame you, I don't know. But journaling can be positive for you as you safely begin to allow all of your emotions to be. Grief, again, is unique. The most important thing is not to get stuck in one stage or another. Good luck to you. I'm very honored that you'd reach out. Sometimes, again, when we have a painful relationship with a parent, when they die, or perhaps even when you're alienated from them, you have a very complicated set of emotions. So simply allow those emotions to be and work through them. 
I'm always very grateful to those of you who take your time and energy to listen to the Self Work Podcast. I absolutely love doing it. I love hearing from all of you. Maybe next time I'll read some of your emails. They've been fascinating lately as you let me know why you listen to the program, who you are, where you're from, all those things that make my audience more real to me. There's lots of ways of getting in touch with me. Email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. My website is drmargaretrutherford.com, and you can subscribe there, and you'll receive a weekly newsletter, which is a great way, an easy way to keep in touch. All you'll receive is my weekly blog post and podcast, I promise. Of course, I have written a new book, Perfectly Hidden Depression, and that is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and at your bookstore. It may not be on the shelves, but just ask and they can get it for you. Or you can go directly to New Harbinger Publications and order it from them. I think there's a discount if you do that. I'm very proud of this book. Many of you have told me that one of the reasons you listen is because of Perfectly Hidden Depression, and I'd love for you to read the book and then leave a review and let me know what you think. Or if you have questions, join my Facebook closed group at facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. That again is facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. But again, the most important thing you can do for me is to tell your friends about self-work. You are my best advertising marketing, publicity, whatever you want to call it. Thanks for being here. Take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.